Yes. Right. Well, her words were definitely used against her and twisted around. And the TBI agent during her sentencing, during the sentencing portion, uh, testified that she thought that the only reason that Redonda was honest about what happened is that she didn't think she was going to be arrested. She didn't think she was going to be charged and that the only that she really didn't show any true remorse. And um, it was just disgusting that that she would say that because I think everybody could see um, how her life has been turned upside down and how um, how emotionally devastated she's been over what happened. And the thing is that whenever something like this happens, whenever a mistake is made, um, we do something that's called reflection, where at the at the end, you know, we look back and we play, we replay the event over and over and over in our minds. And we blame ourselves. We say, I, I can't believe I did that. Why did I do that? I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. It's my fault. It's my fault that she's dead. It's my fault that that this happened or that happened. It's something that we do because we're trying to make sense of all of it. We're trying to process through it it's not an admission of guilt. And so that's why that Veritas report should not have been allowed into and as evidence. It should never have been turned over and made public. And it's also why she should have had um, an attorney with her because she didn't understand the significance of those words that we all of us say to ourselves and repeat to ourselves when we make a mistake. Well, it's a mea culpa. And I don't think anybody's going to beat us up harder than we beat ourselves up wondering what could we have done differently. Every healthcare professional or virtually every healthcare professional uh, goes through the movie in their head. You know, what could I have done differently? How can we learn from this? And, um, it is challenging. I, I do think that it's always going to be that way in healthcare because there's it's impossible to perform at an optimal level perfectly, never making a mistake through an entire career. It's what, what kind of fascinates me is how many near misses there are and and how you know frequently you get away with it. When I say get away with it, I'm I'm being flip when I say that. What I mean is that the typical consequences of a particular error never get manifest, meaning that the patient wasn't injured, the patient wasn't harmed. But before there's a particular end result, that's the patient is injured, damaged, or even dies, there have been a number of near misses, hints, if you will, that this thing was problematic before it happened. So I'm, I'm going to guess that this override function and maybe not the versed vecaronium mix-up, but there probably was some other manifestation in the past where people go, you know, this is kind of, this is a problem waiting to happen. And, um, but because everyone's so busy, nobody really pays attention to it or never gets reported. Or even if it was reported, it wasn't in the priority of things to be addressed now is one of these things nice to have, but maybe later, surely nobody would ever make this type of mistake. When you start to think about, all the potential medications that can overlap with uh, the first two letters matching, I think it's a combinatorial explosion, meaning that I don't think we could even imagine all of the drug interactions if if something's popping up after after two letters. It it boggles the mind. Yes, and there, you know, uh, uh, there was another nurse that was uh, testifying, and the the prosecutor. Uh, was asking, well, was kind of cross-examining uh, this nurse. And this, the nurse had said, um, I, made, I have made mistakes. I've made horrible mistakes myself. And the prosecutor said, well, did your patient die because of it? And I'm thinking, don't answer that. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, Stop. You need a lawyer now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. really. But 
the, the thing is that what different I mean really stop stop and think about that you if you make a mistake, I had a, a I was uh, precepting a nurse um, one time who was administering insulin to a patient. She was supposed to be giving them this sort of intermediate, inter, like a, a intermediate acting insulin, like 70, 30 or something like that. Um, and it was uh, in like one of those pens that reusable pens. So you you give you dial up like 10 units or 15 or 20 units, and you inject it into their the fatty tissue of their abdomen, and then you keep the pen and then reuse it over and over again. And there's like 300 units of of that uh, intermediate acting insulin in it. Well, right. um, she was supposed to be giving that patient like 10 units or something like that, mm-hmm. and so she came up to me and said. Um, how do you, how do you give this? And I said, um, there's, there's a little, um, like there's, there's like a little a needle. Or something. Yeah. Well, there's a needle that, that literally goes onto the end of that with a little lure lock type of end that screws onto the end of the pen. And it's mm-hmm. a, you, that's disposable. So you'll screw that onto the end, inject the patient, unscrew it, put it in the sharps. And then, and then so I explained that to her. She was a, she was not a new grad nurse. She had been a nurse for a couple of years, but she was new to that unit. Mm-hmm. And so she went and gave the medicine. So this was what was a little weird about the situation. She had already given the medicine when she asked me that. And I didn't know that. She was just asking me. And I was like, do you need to give it? She goes, no, I was just wondering. So I was like, okay. I think so she was looking we, for validation for what just took place. Right. So then we moved on. Well, then the next day, I... Uh, we didn't have that patient as happens a lot in ICU, they'll move you around. Uh, so, but someone else did a couple of patients down and I saw this, you know, buzz going around, you know, with this patient, I saw, you know, this lot of conversation and my uh, orientee never said anything to me, but I'm, I got my own people to deal with. So we're, we're just dealing with our own patients. At some point, the nurse practitioner is sitting at the nurse's station. She yells for me, Tina. And I was, uh, yeah. And I walked over there. So yesterday, is there any way that this patient got more than the intended, than the six units or, you know, of, of this insulin, the NPH that they were supposed to get? And I looked at her and I said, well, what's going on? And she said, this patient's blood sugar has been in the tank all like since all last night. And all today, we cannot, they're on D10, a D10 drip. We cannot. (laughs) And I immediately remembered her asking me that question. And I said, yes, yes, it's okay. Now, remember, I am her preceptor. My license is on the line if she makes a mistake. I could get in so much trouble if if the person, the nurse working, uh, quote, under me that I'm teaching does something. It's I'm on the right. line just as much, if not more. And you would want to know that you would want uh, the, you know, the person under you to be entirely transparent with what happened, when it happened, so that mm-hmm. collaboratively you can figure out a solution if there's an issue. Yes. Transparency is something that we'd love to have. But to be transparent, you we have to dial back the potential consequences of coming clean, if that makes sense. Yes. And I knew immediately, I mean, my, my heart kind of sank. I kind of just knew something bad happened. Um, and of course I immediately said, yes, I, I think so. Let's talk about it. What, what, you know, what, what happened? And, um, I said, I, I went, I went over and I found, uh, this, the nurse, the, the orientee. And I said, mm-hmm. so yesterday 
when you were giving that that um that insulin did you already give the medicine and she said yeah i already given it and i said well is it, you know all of a sudden it occurred i said so you asked me after you gave it how to give it and she said yeah and i said so then how did you give it and she said well i i just got a needle and drew it up and i said so you wait wait you got a needle like a regular needle yes and just a regular syringe yes i said so not a syringe that was divided up in units that you would get units of insulin but are milliliters mm -hmm. yes so did you give three units or three milliliters <laughs> yeah sounds like there would be a big difference to that to the outcome okay. based yes. on how the answer comes out she drew up the whole thing the whole pen which is three milliliters of insulin and she thought um so it must have been three units that she was supposed to give because she thought oh okay it's three units mm -hmm. the whole thing well she's it's milliliters it's you, you know it's another re the reason i tell people don't ever use anything other than insulin syringe drop insulin period mm -hmm. end of story but um she gave 300 units of nph to this patient just two orders of magnitude i mean there is just no i mean that patient literally would be dead if he had not been so his his uh a1c was something like 12.6 he was so he was so insulin resistant there was no i mean so it almost it's like it almost saved his life because was lucky you know his pathology was lucky for him right meaning that in spite of the best efforts to you know to to ultimately create a problem, the patient was resistant to that. But had she, you know, and this is this is a medication error. It was definitely a medication error. It was not intentional. It was a good, what I call a good faith error, just trying to do your job. And she, there was, you know, we did look back on it and and we did talk to her about, you know, how, how important it is to, you know, you should have told me that, you know, that you had already given it. She she felt. So, some kind of way about it. But what did when, she say when you said, hey, you should have told me because there are things we can do to mm -hmm. prevent a horrific problem down the road. Now, this patient may not have had a horrific problem, mm -hmm. but getting more people to think about it would be helpful. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that you made this error, others could learn from it down the road. Right. Um, so did she have an excuse or an explanation as she, to well, why first of all, deer yeah, in headlight she, look? Or? She cried extensively. She was, had a hard time. She couldn't take care of patients the rest of the day. I said, I'll take care of the patients. Don't worry. I've got this. Mm -hmm. um, just kind of watch. Uh, she had a, she was shook over it. It was, it, it really, because somewhere in the back of her mind, it bothered her. She was somewhat worried about it, watching all the hub, the, the hubbub that was going on, all the buzzing right. around. She felt like there was something to do with it, but she didn't want to speak up. And I was like, you know, if you even think for a second, because it, it, would, it would have been helpful for them to just know, and they're not, not scrambling around trying to figure out what is wrong with this patient. Um, you know, is something wrong with her pancreas? What's what's going on? Is he dumping right. in, insulin? What, what is the deal? And so she she was very upset she was very you know, she apologized profusely uh blamed herself of course um i mean it it happened it basically we did everything the way we're supposed to we wrote it up as an incident um and submitted that 
talk to talk it through with the educator. Um, and we were all everybody was honest about it and we were able to learn from it. And and I'm I learned, you know, it teach it taught me too, just when dealing with with an orientee, not to just, you know, I sometimes, you know, we as you're precepting someone, especially you they're getting close to coming off orientation, you you start to gain so much confidence in them that you allow them to do things on their own. You you really have to. But at the same time, you know, um, it, I have to be more diligent as well because I'm responsible for this person. Person. Yeah, you could ask the question, hey, did you just give this medication? Are you about right. to give the medication? Just want to make right. sure we're on the same page because if you already mm -hmm. gave it, here's a solution to manage that. Or at least we can think this, think about this. And, you know, in that same, that same shift, we actually had three patients. This is in a cardiovascular intensive care unit um, at a very busy hospital. And we had three very sick patients. And the, you know, sometimes the excuse is, oh, well, there are two nurses, yeah, there are two of you, so you can handle three. Well, that's not how that works. Because see, I was so spread out that it, it's it's the, the time where you would sit there and process that and, and think, um, wait a minute, why did she ask me that question? I was already moving on to something else because we're right. so pulled in a million different directions. You don't have time to even think. Sometimes I get to the end of the day and I just think, oh, I hope I did not make a mistake because I never even had time to stop. I hope I didn't miss something because you just get, you're, you're reactive. You're constantly pulled in so many different directions. It's Any so doctor unsafe. who has seen a nurse in an intensive care unit will appreciate how many plates are being juggled at one time. And I actually sit back in awe with the amount of activity that goes on. And while multitasking is not healthy, there's plenty of multitasking going on just by necessity because there, even if you were just taking care of two patients, if they are two very sick patients, remember, you can't be in more than one place at one time. So even with two patients, you really are attending to only one patient at one time. And if you, I'm just imagining one patient with a closed head injury with five IVs going in, multiple drips, another patient next to them, you know, in a... I'll say a surgical intensive care unit with, um, you know, post thoracic surgery. I mean, I can't even imagine um, the amount of stress and anxiety that goes on just making sure nothing, nothing bad happens to these people. So I can easily imagine somebody asking a question about administering insulin and you would just reasonably assume that they know what they're doing. Um, they have now been educated about this and you can rest comfortably and continue taking care of your patient. So it's a real challenge. Yes, absolutely. So that, that's just an example of how, um, you know, a mistake, a significant mistake could uh, really have a huge impact on a patient. Um, it, and, but it was like you, what, what you said, it was a near miss. It, it just, I mean, it actually hit the patient, but, uh, but the, it didn't injure the patient. The, ultimately, the, you know, the, the patient was fine. You know, George Carlin actually commented about that near hiss and near near miss and near hit because he's saying if you actually think about the language, nearly miss means they actually did hit. There are two planes that actually hit. So a near miss doesn't mean they missed. He says a near miss is actually a hit. And he says he was talking about uh, two planes that you know collide with each other. And he says nobody really says oh they nearly missed each other. So it's kind of interesting uh, that he commented on this decades ago and I've, I've never forgotten that it, it's true but anyway people when people talk about near miss they assume that there's not a problem associated with it that we dodged we dodged a bullet but let me get back to the prosecutor so the typically prosecutors have discretion they don't have to take every case that gets thrown into their lap to trial partly because they have to make a educated guess 
do they have enough evidence to to get a prosecution? And the evidence is beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, that's really challenging. There are there are multiple levels of of persuasion, if you will, for a jury to have to decide. One is preponderance of evidence, which is like 51 to 49, just more likely than not. And that's the typical, um, it's a typical level of persuasion in a civil case. And then there's clear and convincing evidence, which I say is like 75-25. You may see that in a case alleging fraud, again, typically in the civil context. Then you've got beyond a reasonable doubt, which is in my, I mean, if we have to use numbers, I'll say 99 to 1. I mean, it's a really high threshold. Yeah, I mean, you really need everything to line up for a prosecutor to take the uh, the case forward. And and prosecutors are human too. They have to. They don't want a giant record of losses. They don't want to take all these cases to trial and then they're the lose the big loser, somebody that can never get anyone convicted. Uh, consequently, prosecutors have discretion to decide what cases to take. And and frequently. Uh, they will offer the defendant a plea in advance of the case so that nobody has to go to trial, nobody has to risk it. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what happened in this particular case, but certainly the prosecutor exercised his discretion. I don't know if he offered Redonda a plea in advance of trial, but by then she clearly lawyered up, correct? Yes, but the the plea that they offered her included her being being uh, pleading guilty to elder abuse and you know felony elder abuse and she was just not she didn't think that was right and she it, it did mean that she was going to be on the elder abuse registry for the rest of her life and it just sat wrong with her she just explain what that just, means elder abuse registry i know people have heard of the sexual abuse or sexual offender re registry which means that once you as a sexual offender even though you have served time potentially in prison once you are let out there are a number of liberties and freedoms you don't have access to and then there's a public database where everybody can point to and you can't if you're on a sexual offender registry you probably can't um, live or work within X feet of, of a school or places where there are children, for example. Um, and I, I'm actually not familiar with an elder abuse um, type of registry, but it sounds like it would be equally shameful, something that would stick with you well beyond uh, you had completed your debt to society. Yes, in the state of Tennessee, there have, over the past you know years, there have been some cases where people have done horrific things to elder elderly people, and mm -hmm. they have been you know for neglect and literal abuse of caught on camera uh, abusing uh, patients in nursing homes or patients that's in their charge uh, for whatever reason. And so it's, there was such a public outcry that they they developed this you know law uh, to be really strict on people uh, and rightly so in these situations. And so and they part of that was developing this registry that the, that if you were convicted of of one of the, of this one of these crimes you would be put on this registry it would be you'd, you're on there for life. And I'm not sure what all of the different um, stipulations are for that. Uh, being on the registry, but um, I would say it's, like you said, something similar. Uh, it's a scarlet, it, it sounds like a scarlet letter that would yeah. stay with you for quite a while. And, and she, um, yeah, and she didn't want that. She didn't, she just looked at that like, I am not someone who abuses elderly people and I'm not going to, uh, to say that I did. So she's, she was not going to say, you know, plead guilty to that. 
So um, the charges were twofold. Number one, I'm assuming was criminal negligence um, or or um, unintentional manslaughter. Some, I, I can't remember the exact criminal charge, but it would be something that was not intended, but because of gross negligence turned out you know, somebody, somebody actually died. And it sounds like elder abuse was a parallel charge. So she was charged with two different things. I, I wonder whether she would have pled guilty to criminal negligence, whether that's something that she would even, even have entertained in her brain. I don't know for sure. I would, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for her, but I, I think that's something she probably would have considered. Um, mm -hmm. They charged her with reckless homicide and right. the jury didn't find her guilty on that count. Um, but the criminally negligent homicide, they did find her guilty and neglect of an impaired adult, um, a vulnerable adult, I think is what, it, what it was called because she, they looked at it the way that the prosecution said is she when she went to radiology and administered that medication, she took responsibility for that patient by doing that. So you basically said, this is my patient. I'm taking the responsibility because I'm administering a medication that she thought was a sedative. And so, she, you know, I'm giving you something that's going to sedate you and uh, potentially, you know, can uh, depress your respiratory rate and, um, could have reactions and so they are they were saying well you took responsibility for this patient and then you just walked off you didn't st you didn't stand there and reassess her 15 minutes later like the Lippincott uh, manual says that nursing was this so let me let me ask a question was the medication that she gave was it given IV yes now so in her brain she thought she was probably giving Versed IV yes. correct that's and right. depending upon the dose, it is possible for the dose to be so high with Versed that it could cause respiratory depression. Is that a fair statement? It is definitely a fair statement. No doubt about that. Versed is not something that's given, as far as I, any hospital I've ever worked in, that is even given on a regular floor. It's only usually administered in an ICU or surgery right. be because of this reason. And so it wouldn't have even been given had, she, had it, that patient not originated in the ICU Mm -hmm. And then just progressed to where she's essentially a step down patient, but still uh, being managed by ICU nurses. So it's, it, it really just kind of fell into this gray area, unfortunately. Um, and so it was one to two milligrams of, of Versed. Pretty low dose. Yes. And what you typically would do is you would give one milligram as nursing protocol. You would give the, if a, if a provider says, you can give one to two milligrams. What you would do is give one milligram, watch the patient, see if that was okay, see if she needed any any more. And if she didn't, uh, fine. And if, if she did, you give the other milligram. That's basically the way that usually works. And so what she did is she drew it up into a 10 cc um, saline syringe. Mm -hmm. And so, so basically kind of diluting it. Um, right. But she, it was vecuronium. So it's so it's so different because she thought it was Versed, but yet she had to reconstitute the vecuronium because it was in powder form. So mm, she had to, it's unusual, know, is it not? Mm -hmm, very unusual. Well, vecor it's not unusual necessarily have a, a, a IV, an IV medication that's in powder form that you have to reconstitute. Uh, Protonix is like that. There's, there's, you know, solumedrol. There's, there's medicines that are, that are like that. Um, Macaronium, obviously. But Versed's not like that typically, or is it? No, it's not. It is absolutely not. Yeah. It's a, actually, it comes in a, a really small uh, vial. And mm -hmm. no, it is 
it's not it's not like that at all so okay yeah that's that was another thing that was pointed out that you know why didn't she notice uh the difference um right but again another thing that happens a lot of times and these are all like i, I could take this whole event and explain how something like this could happen and it just so happens it was like the perfect storm of all of these um, exceptional things that can happen. Um, because a lot of times, so many times I have walked in to pick up a medication or go get, uh, I remember one time going to get a Vinny mask for a patient that needed a little more oxygen. And I went to, and picked it up and I was like, what is this? It's a completely different manufacturer. It looked totally different. And I'm just thinking, can they not just tell us when they're going to do stuff like this? Because you're sitting there fumbling around trying to put together um, an oxygen mask. Meanwhile, the patient is needing more oxygen. And so this happens all the time. It's not at all unusual to, to go pull something out and go, mm -hmm. oh, this looks different. The vial looks completely different, totally different color. Um, sometimes they're different. You, you pull out a, a pill in the same little uh, drawer and there's multiple types of packaging within the same drawer because they switched over, but there was still some left from the We LG. see that I mean, with Walgreens, for example. So my mother-in-law, for example, is taking a antihypertensive medication for a number of years. She's used to the same shape, same color, same marking on a particular pill, and she got something different, okay? And she never gave it a second thought. The problem was it was a completely different medication. They gave her the wrong medication. Um, but you can well imagine how it would be the correct medication with a, you know, a new shape, a new color, et cetera, primarily because this stuff does happen all the time. If you have a generic medication, that means many manufacturers jump into the, jump into the fray and you have, they have their own proprietary uh, coloring, labeling, et cetera. And, and you're right, this does happen all the time. It's just part of healthcare. We just kind of live with it as opposed to having a single manufacturer with uniform uh, characteristics for medications, for devices, et cetera. Yes, but it's not something that sh it would have just caused this huge red flag the way the prosecution tried to make make it out not. to be like, oh, she's just, why didn't she go, wait, why am I having to recon? Well, because we're constantly doing this. Like, oh, now I have to reconstitute percent. Okay. And then keep going. It's So let me ask you something. How long was the court case? How long was she in trial? So it started on a Monday. Uh, the trial itself was finished uh by the by the end of thursday by the end of the day thursday and Fast. then the jury came back with a verdict on friday did she testify in her defense you don't have to in a criminal case and many attorneys say there's no reason to go up there i mean and there are times that the defendant will say I, i've got to get up there i got to tell my side of the story but it's unusual most of the time it's the state's burden uh, to prove their particular case and it sounds like in this case she was advised by her counsel to stay off the stand, let the state prove its case. Yes, and they played the two and a half hour recording of her talking to the TBI and she literally, it was, you heard her voice and her words telling step-by-step step everything that happened. You can hear the agony in her voice. You hear her crying at the end. Um, the, she could not, she really could not have done any better of a job if she had gone on the stand explaining what happened. So. I don't think they felt like it was necessary. Were there experts on both sides who talked about this being um, criminal behavior? One side saying yes, it was, another side saying no. That is, were there healthcare professionals talking about patient safety, describing how this could have or would have happened? So one would think, 
Uh, I actually was asked to be an expert uh, in this case. And I, at first I said, well, sure, I will, if it will help you. And then I started thinking about it. And I just said, you know, I'm not sure it's the best thing for me because I, my, my words are all over the internet. I'm out there on all these different podcasts, like the, like this one talking to you. Uh, I have my own podcast. I talk about stuff all the time. I, if I was the prosecutor, I would be going, Oh, who's this nurse? And I would probably try to find my own words, you know, to use, Mm -hmm. I would try to find this nurse's words to use against them. And it would be so easy for them to do that. So I, I, I kind of talked him out of it. Um, and so then her attorney still wanted me to do it. And, and Redonda was like, no, I, I agree. So they got another nurse that uh, is a nurse at Vanderbilt. And that was the only expert witness. They only witness the only both witness. Side, both sides. Is that right? Or for there were, ex- there were experts from the prosecution uh, yes. that, were, that, that her attorney cross-examined. But as far as her putting on a defense, there was one nurse who basically just talked about how, you know, basically everything that I've said to you, like how easy it is to make a mistake and all of that, tried to talk about, tried to explain how it could have happened, uh, but no real true expert. The Institute for Safe Medication Practices issued a report very soon after she was um, arrested back in 2019, completely backing her and, and talking about how unsafe it is that she's being she was being charged. And they stood behind that the whole time and they were never contacted to, to testify. They ended up asking some, a representative from, from this uh, organization to come and testify at her sentencing. And it probably had, I would say it had a bearing on, on the possible, you know, maybe the, the outcome of her sentencing because. This was the Institute of Medicine, did you say? Yeah, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices. Oh, for safe Medication Practices. Yes, yeah. it's the it's the organization that basically sets the gold standard for safe medication, safe medication practice, safety, public safety, and and you know uh, what is proper um, to keep mm-hmm. the public safe. And they were adamant. Say, I mean, just completely against the pro- this whole uh, idea of 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 prosecuting her. So well one of the unintended consequences of criminalizing this type of behavior is to drive the behavior underground meaning that um, instead of admitting there was a near miss that there was a potential problem the uh, the the act the actual behavior you will get is to hide a mistake because the penalty for coming clean is that you get beaten up. And so what is normal human behavior? Normal human behavior is to say, hey, look, we're just not going to bring anyone's attention. Hopefully, hopefully we'll get away with it. Nobody will ever find out about it. And I think that is one of the challenges with criminalizing behavior. If we truly believe there are system errors, they need to be solved at the system level, not finding scapegoats. So how long did the jury deliberate on this case? They... They, they went home Thursday evening, so they didn't deliberate at all Thursday evening. And they, by one o'clock central time the next day, that Friday, they had a, a verdict. So and I think it was they, guilty, correct? And it was. And there was an LPN on the jury. And there was a respiratory therapist, a retired, retired respiratory therapist on the, on the jury. So I'm going to be on. I think you and I had this conversation as a lead up to, to this podcast. I was shocked. 
I thought never in a million years will the prosecutor get a conviction. I didn't sit in on the trial, so I don't actually know what was being said, but I knew enough about the facts of the case. And I think I understood the the buzz around criminalization of negligent behavior to suggest I can't imagine a jury during the during the tail end of COVID uh, beating up a healthcare professional for, for a mistake for which they seemed to be genuinely remorseful and had described all of the incidents. There was no cover-up associated with it. I thought there's no way this person will lose their freedom. And it turned out I was completely mistaken. I was shocked. Well, there was the prosecution had a uh, a nurse that had been a nurse, uh, I guess, I don't think she's worked at the bedside uh, probably for a very long time, but she is sort of a career um, legal nurse consultant that mm -hmm. works for the prosecution a lot. And so this nurse uh, was just really, really, really hard on uh, Redonda. And I think that the jury probably gave her a lot of credit and gave a lot of weight to her testimony, which is unfortunate because there were a lot of nurses watching her testimony that were just like, she does not know what she's talking about. She clearly doesn't understand um, what what goes on in hospitals now in this day and age. But it, that's not what mattered. The prosecution got what they wanted, and that was a convincing uh, nurse uh, to to tell the the jury that what she did was unsafe and that basically she should she should be convicted. And I, I think they believed her. And so typically there's a gap in time between the jury rendering its verdict and the judge doing the sentencing. What was she at risk for in terms of a maximum sentence? I think she could uh, have gotten up to eight years in prison. I mean, we were scared. We were really scared. She, the judge, when she was reading her statement at the sentencing, um, scared some of us uh, because she, she's, she sort of was talking about how, you know, she was uh, required to give her, I think, three years for one of one of the. Um, and so all of us were just going, what? I mean, it, it just it was so gut wrenching. And she read a very long statement in the sentencing. Um, that and should be cruel and unusual punishment. It should it was. Given, given the actual outcome which was actually a pretty good outcome. We'll talk about that in just a second, but it was yeah. a good outcome. And I think it's probably better when you're delivering news, uh, particularly when you know, you're, not, you're biting your nails, you don't know whether you're gonna live or die. If you start with the good outcome, I think it helps quite a bit. It takes attention out of the air, but uh, I guess that's, that's just the way it goes. Well, I think that uh, there was a, an attorney, uh, the, a defense attorney actually that was there. So for the sentencing, we had gathered several hundred people, almost a thousand people at the, at a park just across the street from the courthouse. And we were playing, we played the whole, uh, all the, the whole proceeding from the time they started at nine o'clock until the judge read the sentencing. We played it over loudspeakers there at the park. So everybody listened all day. Um, and so there were hundreds of people standing there listening to this. And afterwards, we were all just so just like, what just happened? And there was a defense attorney standing there and he said that she did that. He, he said that's very unusual for a judge to do that. But he believes that he, she knew ev everybody was listening to her. Everybody, all eyes were on her and the decision that she made. And because of 
the decision that she made where the, she was not going to be serving any prison time and she is going to have uh, diversion, uh, the possibility for diversion that that she felt like she needed to explain all of that, like why she explain it out completely why so she, she got made probation that she basically will not have to serve any time in prison she got probation mm -hmm. was there any outcome related to the um elder abuse registry is there i don't know if the judge has any flexibility associated with that or it's just something to be addressed down the road i don't think she does um I was told so everything apparently because of judiciary diversion if she if she serves her probation and kind of keeps her nose clean, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the three years, she can have everything just go away as if it didn't happen. It just all goes away, except from what I understand, she still stays on the elder abuse registry for the rest of her life. And I was just like, oh my gosh. But if you think about it, I mean, if that were, tr if somebody really did do something to abuse, which to me was such a, um, a misuse of the intent of that law. Why would you want to deliberately, why would that prosecutor deliberately misuse that the intent of that law? And everybody knew it. Everyone knows that she didn't neglect the, that or abuse an elderly person and that the, that's not what that law is for. So why do you want to twist it around and make it seem that way? Well, I'll tell you where it seemed to have been used initially to get a criminal prosecution was in Dr. Death, Dr. Death, which is Christopher Dench. I believe that they didn't think that they could convict him of criminal negligence um, and put him away. And he was a day. I don't know if anybody's seen the the series on Peacock with Alec Baldwin. I don't know if anybody's heard the podcast on Dr. Death, but to make a long story short, he was a neurosurgeon and left a trail of tears, a number of people injured, several dead around him. And it took forever for the Board of Medicine in Texas to take action. And the, the amount of tragedy associated with him was so egregious that they, the prosecutor said, let's try to get a conviction. But they thought the, the real challenge was getting a, a conviction for criminal negligence, that they said, let's try a novel theory. And I believe it was elder abuse. I, I'm trying to remember if that is indeed how he was convicted. And it's not dissimilar to convicting Al Capone, the mobster, you know, from decades ago. He wasn't convicted of murder. He was convicted of tax fraud. And I think prosecutors just use what they think will get a guilty person convicted, you know, using the evidence that's available. But here in this particular case, it, it was kind of shocking that they made a misuse of the elder abuse uh, statute because I have seen um, cases of elder abuse. For example, there was a nursing home out on the West Coast where a, a patient was I think I'm trying, no, it wasn't elder abuse in that particular case. It was nursing home abuse, but a similar type of of uh, similar trend where somebody was in a persistent vegetative state, and um, lo and behold, nine months later, she delivers a baby. Oh right. Uh, so how did that happen? Well, it happened because one of the aides, you know, raped raped this patient, and the patient mm -hmm. couldn't fend for herself, and now there's a baby that just popped out. So I kind of get that there are certain unique circumstances where the law just doesn't quite fit, and then you can just shove someone into, you know, a nursing home abuse type of case. But here, the facts were much clearer, they were much different, and 
you know, it's unfortunate that she'll have the scarlet letter associated uh, with her. Now, it's interesting, her comment at the end of the case, at the end, right when the jury delivered its verdict, I believe she was interviewed. She said she was relieved, actually. I think she was relieved that the the sword of Damocles hanging over her head was gone now. I mean, instead of the uncertainty, there was certainty, even if it wasn't a good outcome for her. But I, I, I think she was ready to accept whatever the punishment was. And when the judge delivered probation, I think that came as a pleasant surprise to her. Yes, I, I agree. I think she had pretty much um, st strengthened herself uh, to the point that she knew she was ready for whatever was going to happen. And then when when she got the outcome that she did, I think she, she was pleasantly surprised, um, although she still has to live with uh, what happened and what she did for the rest of her life. She will never, ever be the same. And uh, I think that's what some a lot of people don't understand. Um, she has already been, I mean, she was already punished and will continue to be punished forever because of her actions. So I almost wonder whether she would be an excellent candidate to be co-opted into the patient safety movement. And I say that uh, there was a dentist that was on one of these podcasts who was convicted of some type of criminal fraud related to Medica Medicaid bill, uh, billing. And in his mind, it was a mistake um, and should have been caught. And the amount at issue was not particularly significant. Yet he served, I think, a year, year and a half in a federal prison and lost his license or at least surrendered his license. And um, he became that individual that goes around teaching dentists how not to be him, meaning how you can actually do things properly to make sure that these things don't fall through the cracks. And he's extremely charismatic. He's done a spectacularly good job in terms of educating others about a topic that most people don't think about until there's a problem. And I just wonder whether she could be co-opted by the patient safety movement to be a voice for how thing, how the system could be made better. Maybe too soon. I think right now she probably just wants to um, quietly go into the night. But um, well, if she wants, if she wants a second act, that would not be a bad way to go. One thing that we are working on right now in the state of Tennessee is legislation that will protect healthcare providers, uh, health, all healthcare professionals who are in the situation where they could make a mistake and cause uh, great bodily harm or, or death so that they are not able to be, they can't charge them criminally for mm -hmm. making a mistake. And so their Redonda is, is connected with that movement. I don't, I don't want to say, you know, I'll speak for myself. Um, I contacted my representative in the, the area where I live and uh, mm -hmm. Jason Zachary is his name and he is working on researching it, researching uh, current legislation, what's out there. Um, there is not a lot, if there's anything. Um, and other states to see if there's anything in other states that he could maybe glean from. Um, but we ha have um, senate, state senators and state representatives um, all over the state that are ready to get behind this. So you could potentially get a sponsor for a bill if you can come up with the proper language and no compelling reason to do otherwise. Yes, and we have an attorney that is um, actually working on it, um, that language, and working directly with the representative. Uh, we're it's we're in the very early stages because 
we didn't really start, we didn't really pivot to this portion until mm -hmm. after the sentencing. Um, but the almost 13,000 people that are in the Facebook group that were re supporting Redonda, uh, we actually changed the name of the group from Nurses March for Redonda Vought to, to Nurses March for Redonda's Law. And mm. so now we're focusing on that. And there's so many, there's hundreds of people already that have emailed me to get on board. They want to get involved with this. And so what, uh, what we're doing is basically trying to get nurses from every district in the state to contact their own individual representative, state and uh, house representatives to um, ask them to get behind this legislation. And so we believe that we will not have a problem whatsoever getting this passed by next year this time. How do people learn more about this? First of all, we're pushing up on time and I, I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time here. We've learned quite a bit about the Redonda Vought case. We've also learned more broadly about the criminalization of negligent behavior. And I, I like the fact that while, while your podcast is called Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, we're actually ending on a potentially positive note, which is how legislation can be crafted and passed to protect those who may be in a similar situation down the road. So they don't have to be in the crosshairs to lose their freedom. How do people learn more about this particular law and how do people learn more about your podcast? You can email me at Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can, if you're on Facebook, you can join the Facebook group Nurses March for Redonda's Law. And that's where we kind of put updates. But really, if you email me uh, at Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com and just let me know who, who you are, what state you're from, because when we are finished in Tennessee, we will be moving on to other states. Yeah, it'd be nice to get a model legislation. So if people in other states can actually connect with their legislatures, le legislators, find a sponsor and look to Tennessee as being a bellwether uh, in this particular law, I think, I think some good will come out of all this badness. I do too. And there's a nurse in your state there um, that is going through something similar right now that we're going to start focusing on her at some point. Well, I hope you'll come back and we'll chat about this and hopefully deliver a good and positive outcome. Tina, thanks so much for making time and joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at one 877 MedJust. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. 
reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.